The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Uh, there you go. That's the sound I like to hear. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Winemakers. I'm John Meyer, sitting around with my friends Brian Casey and Bart Hansen. We've got a special guest today from uh, Sante Thomas, Thomas Roberts. Roberts. How are He's you, here. Thomas? What's going on? And especially Mr. Ramey. How are you, David? What's going on? Good afternoon, on? gentlemen. Thank you for having us over to your place. No, uh, it's we're a pleasure. Yeah, beautiful Healdsburg, California today. It's a spectacular day out. And um, we're in. Your facility and it smells so good. It smells like fermentation. It's well, beautiful. there's a little Pinot Noir going on out there, yeah. So I was going to say, I, I, David, thank you very much for um, having us on the, or having coming on the podcast here. It is the middle of harvest, believe it or not, folks. Um, I sent David a uh, email hoping that we might be able to record him, thinking that he'd tell me to come back in November, and he said, ah, next week's open, and so here we are. Um, at the winery in Healdsburg, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you. So oh, thank great. you. Oh, good to be here. How how is harvest going so far? What are do you have any initial kind of thoughts? Yeah, I do. Um, first off, everybody wants to know about yield. Yield is uh, up slightly, pretty much across the board. Um, the weather is spectacular. It has been a little cooler than some of the past vintages. And so instead of starting in the middle of August, we've started in early September. So we're about three weeks later, I would say, than, than, than last year. And no heat waves. That's almost more than rain in the past four or five years of drought where, where we've been, we've had early, early bud break, early bloom, early set, um, and early harvest. Um, it's the heat waves that, that, that bothers us. And, and last year, for example, we, we, a couple of harvests were forced because of 100-plus degree days. Now, it's a little warm today. It's like low 90s, but that's about as warm as it's been. It's, it's just been really um, a lovely harvest so far. Yeah, it really seems like um, Chardonnay, the Sauvignon Blanc, are really benefiting from this year's weather. Pinot Noir, really, you know, development appears to be coming nice and slowly. Yep. Um, I think it's a, it's maybe the best year ever for Zinfandel um, so far because things that would normally be still green now are coming even with the rest of the bunches. Yeah. Um, but you know, on the other side, there's there's weather coming eventually, and we have to wonder about Cabernet and some of those raw and some other varieties, Verdot. right? <laughs> it's still it's still early. Um, although today, I think today may be a significant today. Is is today the equinox or is that tomorrow? Oh. Um, it's anyway. It's very close. Yes, um, I think it's the twenty first. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tomorrow. So okay, and. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's just been a great, great yeah. season so yeah. far. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, typically in, in the old days, you know, you'd say we harvested white grapes in September and red grapes in October. So my point was we've, we've got a lot of time left. Right, right. Yeah, you're right. We, we certainly do. So, David, would you mind um, telling us what was the point when, for, that you discovered wine? 
Mm. Like what, 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 what led you down the path to going into making wine? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so um, I did a summer in Spain in, in college and um, started drinking wine there. And then after that, I'd, I was at UC Santa Cruz, but I did what we, what we called, you could take a quarter at any other UC campus called an inter-campus visitation. And, and so I, I wanted to go to UC Berkeley for a quarter because this, this was like 1971 or something, you know, it was not long after all the, um, the Mario Savio days. And, um, and that's, if I can, just as an aside, that's where I started drinking really serious coffee at the original Pete's Coffee in, in uh, North Berkeley. That's awesome. Um, and um, I was, uh, I, I rented a room. I was fortunate to be able to rent a room in the, in the home in the El Cerrito Hills of, of the mother of a, of a classmate at UC Santa Cruz. And, um, and uh, she worked for, um, for Berkeley, for the, the, the university. And had a, a whole circle of friends, uh, scientists and, uh, from all over the world, uh, photographers for National Geographic, uh, Japanese scientists, and, and um, would have, we, we'd have these dinners in, in her home in El Cerrito Hills, looking up at the top, top of um, you know, the Arlington, looking out over San Francisco Bay and the, and the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate in the city. You could see it all there lit up. And we'd have these dinners with you know, eight, 10 people and wine. And it was just incredible that you could have people that you didn't, never met before and dinner could go on for three hours and you'd talk about, you know, not just chit chat, but really important things. And yeah. that made me fall in love with wine. Yeah. It, it always, it incites conversation, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so then I, w then I thought I was, uh, then I got out of Santa Cruz. I was a waiter in a Sicilian restaurant in Los Altos for a year. And I, and I, and I thought I was on my way to, uh, going to teach English in Colombia for a couple of years, and I was driving through Mexico on the way, and it was a long drive uh, between uh, Mexicali and Hermosillo, and I was in a 71, I owned a 71 Toyota Hilux pickup truck with no radio. So when I say a long drive, it's a long drive. It's just me and the Saguaro, and I'm thinking, all right, but what am I going to do when I'm done with that? And at that point, I had been visiting wineries, reading wine books, buying and, and, and drinking wine and tasting rooms and whatnot. And, and, and it was like, in French, you call it a coup de foudre, a, a lightning bolt, an inspiration. Well, why not make wine? Makes people happy. Uh, it's an aesthetic statement. Uh, there's creativity involved. It's not bad for the environment. This was the first wave of environmental activism, you know, right. 1973, 74. Um, and, uh, and I all but I continued on. I, at the time, I, I, I sort of short-stopped with a family in Leon, Guanajuato in central Mexico. And I stayed about two weeks, and then I, I based, turned around and, and um, in three days uh, was back home. And, and um, about three weeks later, I was in Chem 1A in at, at, at Biology 1 at San Jose State. So. And was it a uh, longer drive home than it was down there? <laughs> <laughs> or 
or were you excited to come back? Actually, actually, it was shorter because I was by myself this time, and I was driving 16 miles a day, 16 hours a day, and right. then and then just pull over in the desert, sleep in the back of the truck, and <laughs> and wake up. I was living off of bananas and Coca-Cola. Uh, and what were you doing down in Mexico? Well, I. I just got I got waylaid. I picked up. I started picking up kids, uh, Mexican young men, boys, who were coming back home from working in in California, and so I had about three or four of them in the back of the camper of the the pickup truck, and one kid Gonzalo in the front, and we just hit it off. And he invited me to stay with his family in León, and I just stayed. I stayed for about three months. I never made it to Colombia. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, so. That's a great story. <laughs> um, so can we talk a little bit about this first wine that you um, poured for us here? Yeah, so this is the 2015 uh, Russian River Chardonnay. So we make, we make currently seven different Chardonnays, okay? And um, they're all from Sonoma County except for one, our original bottling in 1996 with Ramey Wine Cellars was the Hyde Vineyard Chardonnay. Yeah. That's from Carneros. But um, otherwise, uh, we, we make two tiers. We make single vineyard Chardonnays, um, and then we make two village, what in French you would call village Chardonnays. So uh, AOC, or in, in America, uh, AVA, American Viticultural Area. And this is from the Russian River Valley. Our other one at this level is from the Sonoma Coast. So Russian River Valley uh, and the growers include several vineyards from um, Dutton Ranches, uh, from Martinelli family, Joe Rocchioli, and our own farm now, uh, Westside Farms on Westside Road. So it's a blend of really top vineyards. Um, we use, not just for this wine, but for everything, we use native yeast and, and we use native bacteria. Um, and then we don't own a filter. Everything, everything in front of us, everything we make is un, unfiltered because it's finished mallow and it's dry. There's no sugar. So uh, we use traditional old-fashioned winemaking techniques. So this was, this was whole cluster pressed, which is something that I developed in California while I was at Matanzas Creek. Yes, in, you did. In 87s or so. You know, when I started making wine, Chardonnay with Zelma at Simi, everybody was doing overnight skin contact for Chardonnay. And they thought that this was, you know, really going to make big, robust wines, and it did. The only trouble is about three years later, they turned brown in the bottle, you know, because those <laughs> tannins oxidized. Yeah. And so I, I, I published a paper on, on the effects of skin contact uh, temperature on Chardonnay juice and wine, and and, uh, and then and then I thought, so I, I left Simi to go to Matanzas Creek, and I thought, um, well, okay, we've eliminated skin contact now, but what if we just eliminate the 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 destemmer, the crusher, and the pump, and the screw, <laughs> and and put whole whole clusters in the in the press, which which the French would call méthode uh, champenois, uh, in in the sense of whole cluster pressing, and and so. Uh, I, I built, uh, we, we built, uh, my cellar master built a, a, a plywood hopper on top of the press, and, and that was the first time. So anyway, um, low, low, and, the, and the goal of that is, is low phenolics in the wine, low tannin. People don't think of white wine of, as having tannin, but all the color in, in white wine comes from tannin. If there were no tannin, it would be water white. And that's why the richer varieties like Chardonnay, like uh, Pinot Gris, like Gewürztraminer are deeper in color. Um, they have more extract, more tannin. And then the, the, the lighter varieties, uh, you know, 
Abrigno, Chenin Blanc, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, they have, they have less tannin. So we want to minimize the tannin so that we can have a certain amount of richness but without heaviness, with, with, with delicacy. So then it goes to barrels. It's barrel fermented. Um, and uh, not a lot, only about 15% new oak here. So, um, and then it starts, it, the juice just sits there in the barrel. And, and after about, you know, a week, it starts to ferment. And, you know, there's a couple of tricks to, to making sure you don't have problems with native yeast ferments. But notably, you need just a, the right amount of, of um, SO2 in the juice to keep the bacteria in check. Uh, but otherwise, it, it starts to, to ferment, and then when it's finished, we, we top it up and make the barrels full and leave it on the yeast lees. That's key, too. The lees is very important, um, does a lot of, lot of things. And then we just wait. We wait for the mallow to happen by itself, which it does. It happens by itself in the, starting in the wintertime. And uh, during that period, we uh, do what the French call uh, batonnage. Batonnage is a 25-cent French word for using a baton <laughs> to rouse the lees. Uh, why do we do that? Well, you know, it keeps the wine fresh because the yeast are still alive. You know, lees contact and batonnage is not about... Um, bringing toasty character to the wine. A lot of people erroneously think that. That's sort of champagne thinking, but champagne, you don't really have autolysis, according to Moete, old Moete Chandon research, until after about 18 months, which, funny, tradition, you know, is the result of experimentation, which has succeeded. 18 months is the minimum amount needed in champagne, entourage, uh, to be considered champagne. So, uh, so anyway, we, we, uh, the, the yeast are still alive, they scavenge oxygen, they keep the wine fresh, um, they integrate the oak, and then the most important thing, and because then the wine, the Chardonnay goes through malolactic fermentation, this sort of bacterial fermentation, very similar, same bacteria as make yogurt, uh, lactobacillus, leuconostoc, and they eat the the malic acid and turn it into lactic acid, so it softens the palate a little bit. But there's a byproduct called diacetyl that can give Chardonnay this buttery character. But interestingly, yeast have an enzyme. It's called diacetyl reductase. Guess what that does? You don't even need a lot of chemistry to figure that out. It reduces the diacetyl that the bacteria spit out. But in order for it to do that, we need to put them in proximity so we rouse the leaves. So that's the importance of the batonnage. Once the mallow's done, then we add some sulfur and batonnage isn't important anymore. But it's also not necessary if you don't have too many grape solids to take it off the leaves either. So this spends 12 months in barrel um, and then it comes out and the next vintage goes in. That's a beautiful system. Um, yeah. A number of wineries in Burgundy use that. Lefleve, I think Rouleau um, but I've been doing that since since I started with this this uh, Russian River Chardonnay and the 2000 vintage, and it's a lovely system because the barrels are always full, right. um, always fresh. Yeah, always fresh. And uh, then then when the like now this point we 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 start taking it out of barrels to tank, and then what we do is we fine it with a little bit some traditional fining agents, a little bit of isinglass and a little bit of casein and then a little bit of bentonite, not a lot. And then that, that does two things. It clarifies the wine so that we can rack it clean and bottle it unfiltered like this. Um, and it also, because those fining agents, isinglass and, and um, casein are proteins, um, 
they react with some of the tannin that I talked about earlier. Now, not only the tannin from the grape skin, but the, any tannin from new barrels that are in there. And they take those out, a little hydrogen bonding, um, and, and, and smooth the palate so it gives a nice silky mouthfeel to the palate. Always, your Chardonnay is why I love them. There's a richness there, but there's always balance with acidity. Um, always have that nice acidity on your wines. Well, thank you. And I, I will, I'll step in here with the next, um, yeah, sort of educational point. Um, part of that is because about half of the time, depending on the vintage or depending on the, um, the vineyard, if we need to, we'll add some tartaric acid to the juice. Mm -hmm. And this is absolutely common in Burgundy. Um, everybody told me that they, they do that, except for uh, François Jobard said, no, I add uh, citric acid to the wine. And uh, the Louis Latour team said, no, we never, never acidify. Now, if we or they acidify, um, it's not because the acid is low necessarily, although I guess if I were making Lodi Chardonnay, that might be the case. <laughs> but in the Russian River and Sonoma Coast, that's not the case at all. However, some vineyards, for a variety of reasons, might have a higher percentage of malic acid. And so two things there. When, 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 when you have more malic acid to start, your starting pH is higher, um, and then you have more shift in pH when you go through malolactic because there's more malic acid to eat, so you lose more acidity. So if, you, if I take, for example, the Martinelli Charles Ranch, which uh, Chardonnay, which is the basis of our Sonoma Coast Chardonnay, that has, that has quite high acidity. It's about eight, eight and a half grams per liter, but about 55 to 60 percent of it is malic acid. And if I don't add a little tartaric to the juice, I'm going to end up with a pH of 3.8, 4.0. Right. And that's going to give a big, round, fat mouthfeel, sort of for those who know are familiar, like a Marsan from from uh, from the Rhone or, or a, a Condrieu from, from um, you know, Viognier from Condrieu. So it's a different style. And, yeah, I am absolutely a classicist. You know, I started drinking French wines in the 70s when that's about all there was. There right. was basically in the 70s there was, there was France. That's a great idea, David. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, there was France, Italy, and Spain, really. That's about what there was. There, there was Australia, I guess. But, right. um, and, and so I, was, I, I, I started, uh, you know, you'd say, you know, cliche, I cut my eye teeth on the classics. And, and, and good acidity is always a, a hallmark of, of, of good white burgundy. And, you know, we're not making burgundy here, but there are certain aspects of uh, structural elements and, and aspects of the classic wines of the world, be it Cabernet and the Medoc or, or Chardonnay or Pinot Noir and Burgundy, that, that merit um, uh, introspection and, and reflection and, uh, you know, to a certain degree emulation, but just awareness of. It's a little, I, I'll, I'll, I'll analogize, if one were to... Uh, design a, a new sports car from the ground up in California uh, one it would behoove one to know well the insides and out of a Ferrari 
and if you thought you were going to make a sports car in California with have no experience right. of a Ferrari, you're probably not going to succeed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you have mentioned Burgundian wines a lot already, David, but you worked in Bordeaux also, correct? At, it, is it, it Petrus? Yeah, Petrus? people say they work at Chateau Petrus. That's not strictly true. You work for uh, Etablissement Jean-Pierre Moex, which uh, <laughs> Christian Moex is the managing partner of. And um, at the time, it, I worked there in 79 and 89, and then sort of associated again when I worked at Dominus, uh, which Christian is his personal project. Um, so uh, at the time, they owned or managed maybe, I don't know, 28 Chateau, and mostly in Pomerol, but also in, in, um, in, in Saint-Emilion and in, in Fronsac at the time. So yeah, when I, I knew I wanted to work overseas when I got out of Davis. Um, and the, the only question was, Bordeaux or Burgundy? Bordeaux or Burgundy? I vote Bordeaux. Well, <laughs> that's what I chose. Yeah. So, so when I, you mentioned Fronsac and some of these smaller areas there, I mean these are you know little stops on the road, but yeah. boy, they make beautiful wine there. Yeah, spectacular. Yeah, well they can. I think I think in general Bordeaux is making better wine now than it was um, in the seventies and eighties. Is, is the is the next generation coming into Bordeaux finally at this point, or is it still steeped in the old old traditions? No, I think you're seeing a, a lot of a lot of shift in in France, just as as you are. I mean, the world is much smaller than it was. I mean, when I first went to to Europe in the '70s, I mean, plane travel was it was a big deal. That was the yeah. first time I ever been on a plane, 1971, right. going to Spain. Right. Um, now people go in planes all the time right. and, and, and you have the internet. I mean, it's just, the world is so much smaller than it was. Yeah. So there, and, and yeah, I mean, we have a French girl working here, you know, this harvest. We have, we have kids from France every year. Right. So there's a lot of exchange, right. uh, much more than there used to be in the, in the seventies. Right. Now the bigger divide is, is, is the Mayakamas between Napa and Sonoma. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. David, will you talk a little bit about, uh, working with Zelma Long? We, we did a show with uh, Bibiana Gonzalez-Rave, and, and uh, that was one of her heroes um, uh, as far as... And, and was that at CIMI that you uh, yeah. had a chance to work with her? Yeah, so when, uh. I, when I got the Master of Science from Davis, and then I worked in France, and I worked in uh, Australia, and, and um, I, I... You know, it's funny. When, I mean, uh, there were whole, was a whole court cohort of us at... Davis at the same time, 76, 78, 79, um, uh, you know, Dan Lee of, of Morgan, uh, John Konsgaard, Kathy Corson, uh, David Graves and Dick Ward of Saintsbury, uh, wow. Tom Peterson. We all had degrees in, um, in, in, in liberal arts. We all had liberal arts degrees. Really? And, then we, and then we realized, you know, I, I got I to make some money somehow. <laughs> so I don't know. We all ended up at Davis at, at, at the same time. And when I... When, when we got out, the one thing I knew I wanted to work overseas um, before taking a real job, and the other thing I knew, I didn't, I didn't want a, a full-time winemaking job right out of school, because I, I knew that I did not know how to make wine. Now, everybody else got a full-charge winemaking job 
right out of Davis. I mean, it just this doesn't happen anymore. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and it, you know, it's one of the things I, I I worked for three wineries over my period of time, and I wish I would have worked for about fifteen <laughs> to just to get those experiences. I wish the, I would have went to Europe or yeah. to the Southern Hemisphere and and gotten that practical experience. But I mean, it's been a good ride and. Um, but yeah, yeah, you got to get out and experience these things. Yeah, right? and 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 not only is it just about the wine and professional experience, but it's human experience too. Absolutely. You know, it's an accident that we're born into our families and our culture and our time. We could as well have been born in India to yeah. a, mm-hmm. a dirt poor family. I don't know, you know, not um, not to pick on India, but so anyway, I I knew that I wanted to be to learn from somebody who, in theory, knew how to make wine, and and I had heard that Zelma well. Zelma Selma, as she was leaving Mandavi to go to see me, had, had tried to hire me as, a, as an, an experimental enologist, uh, assistant to um, uh, Rich Arnold, uh, who was their experimental enologist. And so I, I wrote her from, uh, from Paris with the Chateau Petrus uh, <laughs> return address and, <laughs> nice. and, and, and said, you know, Zelma, thanks for the job offer but I'm not interested uh, I'm not interested in an experimental position I'm interested in production I understand that you're leaving Mandavi to go to see me and should you need a, a, an assistant winemaker I'd, I'd be you know pleased to be considered for that position I'd leave Petrus for you and and, <laughs> and, um, and as it as it happens just as I was getting back from Australia uh, you know her Chris Markell her assistant winemaker left to go to Piper Sonoma and so I, I think I had an inside track on that job. <laughs> so for five years, Zelma and I did really good work together, I would say. We pioneered um, oxidized juice uh, in California. Uh, I think we pretty much pioneered Lee's Contact and yeah. for barrel fermented Chardonnay. Um, yeah, we did some really, some really good work. Did you pick up some of these techniques while you were in France? Um, at this point, I hadn't been to Burgundy, so uh, these were things more that was just sort of starting, and that we put into in, into production. The the oxidized juice actually came to us from the German researchers. The uh, the filter pad uh, rep uh, from Seitzwerke was a guy named Fritz Nerat, and he gave us uh, some papers that a researcher that was they paid that was associated with Seitzwerke. Um, Müller-Spath wrote about enzymatic oxidation of, of juice in white wine, and so we did the trials, and then we, um, and then we shared it at the Sonoma County Wine Tech, and it just sort of spread from there. Um, Lee's contact uh, the the tradition when when we got there when I got there in '80, and Zelma really was new too. The standard way, I would say, people were making Chardonnay was. Well, first the skin contact, um, and then tank ferment with added yeast, and oh. then when it was dry, you'd rack and go to barrels without yeast lees, and then if there were new barrels, the wine would get over-oaked by January because there was no yeast <laughs> to integrate the oak, and you know, and then and then you'd filter it and sterile filter and bottle it. There wasn't malolactic, there wasn't lees contact, so. We put that into practice on a large scale. It's not to say that Dick Graff had not been doing that down at Shalone, but in the North Coast, um, 
uh, I think we were some of the first to really be doing it on a large scale. I remember. And, and like how many cases of a bottling would that have been? Would that have been a 10,000 well, we case? We were, no, I mean, geez. I, we were doing about 2,000 tons total. And probably about half of that was Chardonnay, Chardonnay. so 1,000 tons, so yeah. that would be maybe 60,000 cases of yeah. Chardonnay. Yeah, that's that's a major, I mean, yeah. 10,000 is a lot of case, but that's a really large. It's a very large to, amount of Chardonnay. Yeah, to <laughs> it start really doing is. it kind of that style and being the first to get out there and do it. Well, know? and I, like I remember Ed Sprazia calling me once to kind of, you know, and he was in charge of all the Behringer, and, and he was chewing on this, and he said, and he'd done some experiments, and he was checking with me, he said, you really... You really don't need to rack it off out of the leaves, off the leaves <laughs> in barrel ferment after. And I said, no, you don't. And this was like, you know, he says, God, that's huge for us. I mean, because they had like, you know, I mean, I, I don't remember. They, they might have had 50,000 barrels. That's a lot of work. Wow. Right. You know? and, and, and no doubt that whole cluster pressing helped with that also because there were less bad lees that you had to deal with, correct? I that's, mean, that's, you were dealing with just yeast lees. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, you know, by volume, we get about maybe a percent and a quarter solids uh, with juice with solids in it at the bottom of the tank. It's enough that we don't even rack clean anymore. When We, we settle overnight and then, and then hook up to the bottom valve and go to the next tank, and the, and the really heavy stuff sticks to the bottom of the floor, tank floor, but otherwise, if it flows, it goes. Right. And, uh, and that's, whereas, whereas otherwise, if you're, if you're grinding and tearing and pumping and destemming and everything, I mean, at, at Chalk Hill, where I was pumping whole clusters to the press, the axial feed, um, I mean, we'd, we'd run like 6% by volume solids. Right. You, had, you had to have a lease filter. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Filter the lease. Sometimes if it was really bad, you'd have to actually rack the tank a second time. Yeah, right. Be, so you'd be above the racking valve. Or there, so. you, there used to be centrifuges to, to clarify the, <laughs> right. you know, there you go. the, yeah. the dirty juice. But it sounds like it's all harmony for you. It's a kind of a marriage of old world methods and new world innovations. Well, you know what I like to say is that nature, nature has been making wine for 6,000 years before enologists showed up. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 once again, you know, I mean, uh, we should end it on that one. <laughs> well, and some people still make wine like uh, like they did six thousand years ago. Right, That's all right. okay with me. Well, right. if if you know what to do, if you follow the old traditions, like so, so we're we're making thirty five thousand cases of wine with native yeast, native bacteria, and we don't own a filter. We have no brat, no four EP. Um, we have no stuck ferments. We have no volatile acidity. I mean, nature works if you kind of. Let let it, you know. But right. many and you, have, and you have to really pay attention. And many wine we have a very sophisticated laboratory. We we <laughs> we do almost all everything except the the four EPs we do in house, and um, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so do you want to talk about the the Pinot? Um, it looks like it's the Russian River Valley. And here's a question: When we're sitting here at the winery. What AVA is the winery actually sit in? Russian River Valley. It is Russian River yeah. Valley. Yeah. If you go just um, right around 101, running north-south, uh, it switches over to Dry to Creek Dry Valley. Creek. Okay. Um, but the Russian River is just you know right over there. Yeah. No, I just wasn't sure if if where the winery kind of sat and and um, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. This. Well, okay. so so this is a relatively new product for us new That's line this thinking. is yeah. pardon this is a 2016 which is just being released russian river valley pinot noir um 2014 was our first and and really 
you know, when, when I started our brand, I was working with Dominus in Napa Valley and then Rudd. And, and so we started with, uh, with Reds with Cabernet, Napa Valley Cabernet. But now that we bought Westside Farms, which is a 75-acre parcel on Westside Road, uh, a mile south of Rocchioli, across the street from William Selium, you, you can't do that and not make a Russian River Valley Pinot Noir. So <laughs> How did you get that vineyard? Uh, it was on the market. Really? Yeah. What's, what, what's where were you, Bart? <laughs> yeah, David. What, Hello. What, what is the soil like over there? I'm it's, sorry. It's what's the soil like in that venue? Well, it's 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 exactly the same as at Rocchioli on the, on that side, and it's uh, you know it's clay loam. Um, Joe's River Block, which we buy some Chardonnay from, and our West Side Farms, it floods every every now and again. Mm. Uh, it, it last flooded in. Um, the uh, winter of 17, you know, mm-hmm. um, twice, actually. Right, yeah. wow. And that deposits, you know, river alluvium. So it's a fairly rich soil. It's fairly high-yielding. Uh, it's getting older now. So now now we're down around four four tons an acre. But Starting to self-regulate itself. Yeah, it is. But when it and, – and missing vines, you know, has a lot to do with that. But um, – uh, when when it when it was in full production, I mean it's it's a high yielding vineyard. It's like six and a half tons an acre. Wow. Um, so it's a it's a richer it's a richer deeper soil, and yet it seems the uh, the Chardonnay that comes off it is is got tremendous acid and really low pH. It's I mean it's hmm. it's really makes good good grapes. Good well, wine. that soil is right for the climate here, and it makes a beautiful product. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thanks. Yeah. So this is this is. Uh, uh, a blend. This Pinot Noir is a blend from our friend John Booker, who's right up the right up the road, three miles. He also runs a, a dairy, you know, operation there, yeah. and, and um, you know, cattle operation, which you you could not, he, he couldn't do it now. No. You couldn't start that. No, no. now it's just Especially amazing. There, yeah. The the changes that are happening in Sonoma County as as agriculture is uh, is being nibbled at by. Um, by residentialists, but um, my mom's side of the family is all in the dairy industry, and um, they're way out in Valley Ford in the middle of nowhere, and they struggle, you know, to stay in business. And actually, the way they've done it is they've gone organic, believe it or not. Saint John Booker did the same thing. Yep. Yeah, yep. he he had to because you can actually make money on your product. But you know, there it's. I mean, uh, these buzzwords sound sound good, but there's there's a flip side that not everybody realizes. So. John imports organic cattle feed by the by the shipping container from Argentina. Okay, so wow. so organic. So right. you know what? <laughs> what's the what's the nexus of organic and local? Um, you know, you know it's, um, it? Sam, if Sam was here, he'd probably uh, have that good discussion with you. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it alone. And I think just your commonness says enough about it. It's it's very difficult. Not yeah. as, it's not as cut and dry, is it? Yeah. But, you know, people are paying for organic in every market there is, in food and everything. I mean, food and wine and sure. uh, on yeah. down the line. It's, yeah. They want organic. And there's a huge market for it now. So it's Well, I was, I was doing a, a trade lunch in Orlando once, and uh, right next to me, this was, I don't know, five or six years ago, right next to me was the buyer from the local Whole Foods. And uh, it, w- it was maybe six, six or seven years ago that, you know, with wine or organic, you know, demand was starting to step up. And so I asked him, I said, so, 
you know, what's, what's the deal with you? You're buying your customers, you know, what do you think about organic and its desirability or whatever? And he says, oh, yeah, when I get people ask for organic, the first thing I ask them, I say, well, do you want, do you want certified organic or, or, or non-certified organic? You know, it's like, and it just rocks them back on their heels. It's, my point is that it's, I don't mean to demean organic. I, I, I mean to say that it's a much more complex issue than a, than a simple buzzword Absolutely. will explicate. Right. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of cost to being certified, and um, right, and right now in 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 Europe, they are the regulators are contemplating outlawing outlawing copper sprays for vineyards, and you know Bouillon Bordelais, uh, you know, uh, sulfur and copper sulfate uh, have been the principal fungicide over there for for years, and and it's what you use with organic, but right. you know, uh, how, how organic is spraying a heavy metal on your, you know, on right, your plants. Right, right. So, I mean, it's not, it's not a simple question. It's yeah, it's not. We're starting to see that on the floor too. I don't know if you agree, Brian, but more and more we're seeing, do you have any organic wines on your list or right. biodynamic wines? Right. And I know some places actually do that and they'll have a little asterisk or a little, uh, thing highlighting biodynamic grown. or organic wines, but, but then, but then exactly what you were saying, are they organically farm, but they're not, um, actually produced organically. And so there's lots of little, um, steps. Well, you you can't that. be, you can't, or wine cannot be organic labeled if it has more than 10 parts per million total SO2 of, uh, and the yeast make more than that. So you, you almost cannot have organic wine in the United States. You can have wine made from, made from organically grown grapes. But sometimes I like to point to, you know, one of our Chardonnays is from uh, Kent Ritchie's Vineyard, which was planted in 1972. So that is, what is that, you know, 36 years old now or 46? I can't, I lose, I lose track of my decades. 46. 46 years old. <laughs> and, you know, that's... That's pretty sustainable, you know, using a word that the Sonoma County grape growers likes to use these days, and sometimes people push back against it, but it does have, it does have meaning. I mean, that's sustainable farming. That vineyard, same vineyard's there for 46 years, yeah. and we have numbers of vineyards around, old Zinfandel in particular, right. that are old, old Zin vines. That's pretty sustainable. That is pretty sustainable. If you're not having to tear it out and start over and all the things that go along with planting a new vineyard and developing it and all the trucking and the waste and, and whatnot, um, it, yeah, it's sustainable as keeping it in production. You are also a good steward of the soil. You're making things better, not destroying them. Right. They're, 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 I don't think, at least in, in, in North County, in North, you know, Napa, Sonoma, Lake, Mendocino, that there's a single grape grower that wants to see their soil washed down into whatever the adjacent creek is. It right. just doesn't. Farmers are good stewards of the land. Right. You have multi-generation farmers in Sonoma County like the Martinellis, the Duttons, the Mortensons, Sanchettis, um, that, that, you know, they're taking care of their land. They, they got it from their father. Yeah. And, and they're going to give it to their kids. Yeah. They don't want to see it wash away or be polluted. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank God, because there also would be housing developments. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Brian? Yeah, what, who, who is it that said that? They said they're not uh, growing grapes over, over there anymore. They're growing houses. 
Um, we, we did a podcast recently where we had some uh, vineyard land that was being taken over. Was um, it maybe Jeff Cohn? It, it might have been Jeff, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, this is my opportunity to step in and say this is, we're at a crossroads in Sonoma County, and this, this is exactly the issue. My family moved to Sunnyvale in 1958. I went from third grade through 12th grade to school with Steve Wozniak. Jobs was two classes behind us at Homestead High. And when we moved there in 58, it was a housing development plopped down in the middle of the orchards. There were, you know, we'd go ride, I'd ride my bike, and at the end of the, some road, there was just a picket fence with an orchard on the other side. And there were prunes, there were apricots, there were cherries. If you went a little closer to Santa Clara, you had walnuts. And those were all commodity crops, every single one of them. They could not compete with houses. The only thing in Napa and Sonoma that, that keeps... Sonoma County from turning into Santa Clara Valley, because otherwise it's exactly analogous, is the value-added proposition of wine that yep. allows farmers to compete with houses and, and stay in business and get a return on that. You know. we, we had uh, Stephen Michelson Giacomo on, and we had that discussion of when their family changed from uh, trees. From pears. To, from pears yeah. and, and apples, and apples yeah. to vines. Yeah. And, you know, and how it was the only way, because what did he say? They were losing how much a year? It's half a million dollars a year <laughs> in trees and right. Um, so, and now they're they are sustainable, you know, and, and, and you they're know, still farming the same original yeah, piece of pe property, piece of ground, yeah, yeah. green yeah. acres, green, green acres. acres. I used to yeah. I used to buy the the Chardonnay when I was at Matanzas Creek. It was the best Chardonnay from them. Um, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so let's move on to. Over two thirty, I'm sure you have grapes coming in today. Or are you guys done for today? No, we're 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 done. We had we had uh, uh, rich. Actually, we harvested uh, the second part of Richie uh, Vineyard Chardonnay today. And it looks like we got about ten and a half tons. Uh, we we divided it because some of those old vines uh, have died, and then there's young vines in there. And we we asked Kent to go through twice. Uh, so about last week, we brought in the the young vine, younger vines in in our block. And then today we brought in the, the old vines, the 46-year-old vines. Because, cool. Bart, I'm excited to try this next wine. I know. Um, I was going to preface that. You know, we are uh, favors of Rhone's, and, um, we, and we do love our Syrah. Um, so I know Brian, we're, he, he we're made all the comment. Sort of, uh, we're all Rhone Rangers. I was a buyer for the Girl in the Fig for eight years, so ah, I drank okay. almost exclusively uh, Rhone varietals. But I had never tried your Syrah before and noticed that you... Um, that you were uh, a fan of uh, Rhone varietals, and you might have a little bit of uh, Chateau Neuf in your cellar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, for years, I, I, uh, I think, if, you know, my Desert Island Red was uh, Chateau Neuf de Pop, or Gigondas, or, you know, or Rasto, yeah. or Vaqueras. Um, no, uh, for years, you know, I mean, we don't so much anymore, but when we were younger, a lot of us that were Davis together, kept tasting, you know, once a month, and about once a year, we'd We'd, we'd taste Syrah, and, um, you know, it was just, it was always disappointing, you know, but what happened was people were making Syrah like they were Cabernet. Uh, it was the same thing with Pinot Noir before Dick and Dave in Saintsbury. Dick and Dave were the first people to treat Pinot Noir like a, like a white wine and bottle it before the next vintage and right. not, not mm -hmm. aerate it. Everybody was aerating the crap out of the Pinot Noir, right. making it tired, it was dead, and the same thing was happening to the Syrah. Whereas now I think of Syrah is very analogous to, to Pinot Noir, but with this distinctive 
flavors of sort of peppercorn and, and bacon fat, smoked meat, green olive, grapefruit. A colder weather. Very distinctive. Um, and it, and it, it, it expresses that in cooler climates. Yeah. Um, well, and and lower sugars. Peppercorn. So, so people who are thinking of, uh, first off, for, for uh. people who are listening, let's just get rid of, uh, yes, Syrah and Shiraz are the same grape varieties. <laughs> there you the, go. The Australians. Uh, you heard it here first. Sort of mistakenly. Uh, well, no, this is something that we're taught, you know, as Psalms that uh, Shiraz originally came from Persia. And you are saying, no, that's not true. Well, and I think you that's a leading question. Number one, <laughs> most. most that's, my, that's my job, sir. Most recently, <laughs> it, what I've read is that it appears that. That, that the Australians actually didn't call it Shiraz because they thought it originated in Persia. They called it that because the guy who originally imported it from France in about 1830 or whatever, he, he had really crappy spelling. And, and, <laughs> and, oh, man. and, and so he, he wrote it in some weird way that they started calling Shiraz but may have well been supposed to be Syrah. So Carol Meredith, uh, ex-UC Davis, has in fact proven that Syrah originated in the Rhone Valley. Um, and um, it, it, it is a chameleon variety. If you plant it in a warm region like the Barossa Valley of Australia, you get jam in a bottle. Um, but in a cool climate, it is really, I think, sort of analogous to, to Pinot Noir. Um, with those, those sort of distinctive uh, characters of uh, bacon, bacon fat and uh, peppercorn. And mm. could you explain where Rogers Creek Vineyard is? Um, I, I've, I've always, I've never been clear whether it's on the top of Sonoma Mountain or if it's on, the, or if it's on the east side or the west side of the mountain. So it's on the west side. It's on the southwest face at about 800 feet. So it's not nearly the top of the mountain. No. But so that's it is, a little cooler there. It, it, it's right in the in in the uh, up uh, on, on the upper part of the trough of what's now called the Petaluma Gap, and you know. And so you access it from what road? Uh, Stage Gulch Road. Um, Stage and you go in. You go in by the quarry. Where the where the dump used to yes, be. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You go and then you go. You turn. You know. You're heading heading east on uh, Stage Gulch Road. And yeah. You, and you you know you're you're short of so you're between Petaluma and Sonoma right. town and then right kind of at the bottom of Sonoma Mountain essentially you turn left and start going uphill and you go a long ways up there. Okay. Uh, so we're we're south of Petaluma. We see every building in San Francisco quite clearly, yeah. particularly now the Salesforce Tower. Um, and uh, right. I, I was able to choose, I was able to put in, you know, uh, for what we get now, about 10% Viognier, and then clone um, 470 and 877, I think, or I get them mixed up, 477, 870, I can't remember anymore. And is that, are you the only one that gets the grapes from that vineyard? No, I, I did originally, but, you know, we ran into the... Um, the distinction between my enthusiasm for the variety and the market's appetite. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We've, we've all been there. <laughs> we've all heard about that, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. David, you described the soil at Rogers Creek as being a poor volcanic soil. That's exactly how I describe it. <laughs> so, um, what makes it poor soil? Oh, uh, poor soil uh, lacks organic matter. So uh, organic matter, for example, our, our rest side farms, I talked about being, you know, periodically flooded by the Russian River, and a lot of, 
you know, uh, you ever notice, I mean, in the rainy season in the winter, the Russian River, which we live right by, it, it turns murky, it turns brown. And what is that? That's like topsoil, you know, running off into it, which isn't desirable. And that topsoil is, is, is richer, you know. I mean, what is, what is soil? I mean, soil is, is, is broken down mineral matter, rocks, but then with broken down organic matter too. And so the more organic matter you have, the richer the soil. And the, the less, the more purely volcanic, the poorer the soil. And the, the, the soil scientists refer to this as vigor capacity. So every soil has its own vigor capacity and it's related to the amount of organic material in the soil and the depth of that soil. Now, in Carneros, where Larry Hyde is, you've got clay loam. It's not in itself that rich, but it, it is it is got some richness, but there's impenetrable hard pan at about 30 inches. So that limits the vigor at Hyde Vineyards. Right. Um, at Rogers Creek, we have, you know, white, whitish brown volcanic soil. Yep. Um, there's not a lot of organic material. So that's what limits the vigor there. So is it the Russian River that makes the Rocchioli Vineyard uh, so much more organic, uh, alive, uh, than, say, Rogers Creek? Um, it, I, I wouldn't use that word, although you could, it could relate. Um, basically, there's higher yields. There's, there's bigger plants. You know, if you, I mean, let's take, right now, tomatoes are in season. Um, God knows, tomatoes are in season. Um, <laughs> Bart and I got a roadside stop yesterday. I actually met someone on the side of the road to get tomatoes yeah. from him. Yeah. off a flat of uh, San Marzano's. Thank yeah. you, Julia. Yeah. I just I, I just brought in a dozen uh, from our home garden for the for the lunch tomorrow. Staff lunch we do every Friday during harvest. But so if, if you plant tomatoes just anywhere in your backyard, you're going to get a certain tomato plant. But if you have a raised bed filled with rich organic soil now you're going to get a much more vigorous tomato plant and grapevines are no different and sometimes john you can even looking in a large vineyard you can look along the rows and see the areas where there's oh, yeah. obviously much better soil because there's the everything's greener and brian and i saw it you know at the bottom of a dam in a vineyard the other day how huge the vines were there and yet just up five rows up they started yeah. to struggle well, and the yeah. color of the color of the leaves even was so yeah. much different yeah. than just two rows over i mean yep. you could tell that they were tapping in somewhere to that water yeah. so so yeah. this is a beautiful wine can we ask you to talk a little bit about the winemaking on it and is there any viognier in this or is mm. it what he said 10 10 it's 10 or 11 percent yeah. co-fermented um and another and then and then another interesting thing and and this is just a measure of the sort of the power of the, the, the wine that comes out of a particular site. You wouldn't know it, but this is 100% new oak. This is, is? 100% wow. new Francois Frere for over two years, aged on the leaves the whole time. And, and, but the oak, wh where is it? It's, it's not there. No, um, it's not there at all. It's, it's just appropriate neutral. for this vineyard, for this wine. You know, the famously the Gigal de Lalas, they're 42 months in new, new, new oak, oak. You know, so we're not going that far because we actually like to make a little money at some point <laughs> by s selling the wine. Um, <laughs> you haven't owned the vineyards for 2,000 years, right? Exactly. <laughs> but then, and then the other thing about uh, Syrah, uh, and I, I alluded to this earlier, this analogous to Pinot Noir is it's not an aerated variety. You put it in a barrel, 
and and you just let it sit there. Yeah. You know, on the leaves, and you don't rack it, and it doesn't see air. Right. Um, and then and then eventually it comes out. We Any large format um, barrels, or do you? No, no. We because you know it's that's a, um, that's a. Um, Almost a production issue, a practicality issue. Sure. When you start having different size barrels, it's 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 difficult uh, to move them around. And I understand, and and we have to look at this stack. As a, yeah, stack, and this is you are your winery here is uh, in, in downtown Healdsburg, and it's obviously a converted warehouse of some sort, and you have a certain amount of space to work with. And yeah, no, I understand. I was yep. just curious if that had been part of it. Cause I know we spoke with Jeff Cohen and Jeff is actually moving away from um, regular, you know, 60 gallon uh, barrels um, on all trying to go to almost all large format, but yeah, you're right. They're all different sizes and they take up a lot of space yeah, and see. they're hard to move. Yeah. They're hard yeah. to, yeah. Um, and what about uh, any whole cluster fermentation yeah, on this? Yeah, this is about uh, after some experimentation, we realized that we like about 25% whole cluster uh, with the Syrah and now the Pinot, too. So we're making the Syrah and the Pinot uh, identically, uh, except mm. for the, the co-fermented Viognier. And, and are you worried about what the stems look like, or you just stay the course and you, go? You know... Uh, here in California, you hear winemakers talk about uh, examining the lignification of the stems. So there I am over at uh, with the Les Rudd group uh, at Gigal uh, with um, Philippe Gigal, and I'm I'm asking him questions, and I ask him about you know well how you know how do you determine you know uh, you know if you're going to add stems and whole cluster and how much? And he says, well the the lignification of the stems. I'm, I'm translating from the French. Um, <laughs> and and, and uh, I say, well, what, what does that look like? Because when we say lignification in, in English, we think woody. We think that, you know, dark, woody bark. Um, he says, well, you know, in the, the rachis, which is that little portion in between the top of the grape cluster and the, and the, and the, and the cane, uh, when the rachis gets that little reddish uh, cast to, to it... <laughs> That's lignification. That's so, right. you know, if people are waiting for Syrah stems to get lignified, they're going to wait forever. Well, right. Syrah, <laughs> Syrah stems are a fluorescent green. green. They, are, they are bright green. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, what, what I find, with the, what I like, how I would characterize the whole cluster effect as making, the, the, making it more Syrah-like. Without the whole cluster, it's more of a monolithic red wine. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's very good. That's very good. And I've made some of those monolithic red wines out of Syrah, and um, you eventually <laughs> learn that you have to change a little well, bit. Well, you, you, you just sort of asked my question. You eventually learn. How long did it take? You said you experiment With, uh, yeah. over, over years to get 35% of the whole cluster, et cetera. How long does it take no, to with, figure that out, David? With Syrah, I mean, you know, five, six, seven years, you start to learn. But the biggest thing was the harvest decision. Because when I started with Syrah, I thought that I had to worry about phenolic maturity the same way I do with Cabernet. And with Cabernet, it's all about phenolic maturity. Um, you, you, you know, you eat the grapes and, and you're looking for the crackly seeds, not, I mean, beyond crunchy. You want crackly seeds, and and you want the, mm. you want the tannins. You want the grapes to be delicious, chewing in your mouth. The whole thing, seeds, stem, you know, seeds Everything. and skin. Um, 
Syrah's not that way. Syrah's like like Pinot Noir. You don't have. To, I don't worry about phenolic maturity, um, and and so. I used to be picking at 26 and a half bricks, and, and now I'm picking at 23 and a half bricks. Mm. That's the big, that was the biggest learning curve with Syrah. Wow. Um, and uh, you finding it difficult to sell this Syrah, even though it tastes this good? We, uh, we try to not make it difficult by not making too much. There you go. <laughs> right. How long have you been making this Syrah? Our first vintage was 19, no, two. 2005. Wow. Yeah, 05. So this is our, I guess, our 10th vintage of, yeah. of Syrah. Nice. Um, and, and when are you going to start making some Grenache? <laughs> we, we, you know, we started a, a, a companion brand in 2014, Sidebar Cellars. Yeah. And I, I, I did um, access from um, Redwood Valley in Mendocino County a, a, a high-tech a new um, vineyard that had Grenache and Merved, um, and then I, I blended in some Syrah. It was a product we called Ronish. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My my uh, uh, intellectual property lawyer said we got the cola, the the federal label approval, but uh, my my lawyer. IT, IP lawyer said, don't even think about trying to trademark that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you think that Grenache uh, hasn't really reached its full potential here in the United States, right? I how do you know that? Well, I've, I've heard you talk about that. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I would say that. Um, I mean, to me, you take a Gigondas from Domaine de Quéron, um, and um, I just haven't found a wine from California to, to, to match that yet. Now, yeah. that said, I, I, I'm hearing that down in Santa Barbara County that there may be some, and I just haven't, I haven't tasted them yet. Maybe so. you're the one to do it, David. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I don't know. You've got the Syrah to put right in the middle, and you said you played I mean, around the, with the Mavet. The, yeah, you know? the thing here in Sonoma Valley, or Sonoma County, is, is there was so little Grenache and Mouved planted that yeah. wasn't part of a field blend, and so um, now there's starting to be some plantings. You know, Phil Caturi's, uh if, if you're going to plant grapes, you're going to plant some Grenache on something. He's, he's going to sneak some in in your right. vineyard somewhere, right? Um, so it's yeah. interesting because we're all fans of it, and um, yeah, we're just just looking at the future and wondering where it's going to go. Yeah, I, I I think the future is bright. I mean, we have, uh, I mean, you know, climate change aside, we have we have a golden climate. You know, I mean, you know, you see, I, we had a, for a while I, I consulted for uh, with Diana Snowden on Snowden Vineyards, and she's married to Jeremy Sess of Dujac. Yeah. So we had our, uh, at the time, the last tasting group I was part of, we, Jeremy offered to host the tasting. And so, you know, so we had Ted Lemon and, and people in the, in the group. And um, one of the things Jeremy said was, you guys, you guys here that are sorting grapes? You're nuts. It's a waste of time and money. You have perfect fruit, you know. You can come see what we deal with, uh, you know, right. uh, sometimes in Burgundy. Those grapes you need to sort, but right. you have perfect fruit. Um, you know, we, we were just talking with Morgan Peterson yesterday about it, and he was talking about sorting in that, you know, you spend... 80% more time to get out 10% of no, no, the 5%. 5%. 5% of yeah, the Yeah, he said it's just not worth it. It just doesn't make any sense. You know? It's not. And, and you know, uh, we, we, we've done our experiments and with, with the different destemmers and the sorters and optical sorting and whatnot. 
and I'm not convinced. I, I think that a little variation gives a more interesting wine. You know, the 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 perfect berry wine was kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> David, um, everybody asked the question about your desert island wine. If you had to have <laughs> one wine to just live out the rest of your life with, what would it be? Well, my my, <laughs> my son Alan in the corner knows what I'm going to answer. You know, these things change over the over time, but after about uh, 15 years of, of being on the Southern Run bandwagon, somehow about the 2006 vintage, I Brunello spoke to me for the first time, oh. and, and and so since then, you know, I um, I have a a lot of Brunello in the house, and you know it's like, uh, I mean, uh, some of these you know trophy wines, some of the Napa Valley Cabernets that are so expensive, and I was having a conversation with um, Tony Correa, the the land appraiser, um, e- email exchange a while ago and it was we were talking about this you know and and, and i said yeah god when are when are people going to realize they can get a really good brunello from a great vintage for like 35 or 40 dollars you know it's like so that's like you know i'll i'll open up one of those just at the drop of a hat and, yeah. and finish it over a day or two right. you know a couple of days you know put it put on a counter it doesn't doesn't get oxidized because right. they're not afraid of so2 right. you know so um my wife carla does not a a fan there's too much acid for her so uh, i i I always love to have a you know a bottle on the counter or a couple of them and revisit the wines on over three or four days and try to get some idea of the potential of the aging from them on that but yeah yeah well in general just for for your listeners you know the if if you wonder often the the young vintage wines really like currently if you were if you know 2015s 2016s those are the ones that you can you know drink a half a bottle at lunch put the cork in leave it on the counter and come back the next day the following day right you know even out about Absolutely. you know if it's, it's even better the next day but yeah exactly even better the next day if it's an older vintage if it's you know <laughs> 10 over 10 years old then your 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 sulfur your free sulfur is going to be gone and that wine could have a, a hint of oxidation the next yeah. day so the, those are the ones you want to finish up when you open them but but young wines no i mean if and it's if it's a white put it put a cork in it put it in the f- door of your fridge come back to it the next night and if they're really old sometimes you only have about 10 minutes 10 minutes that they taste good, when i right? was at, <laughs> when i was at simi the, the the wine we liked the most a lot was the 1935 simi cabernet so this is like 80 81 <laughs> So we're, was that, 45 years old? Um, and you could just, you, you, what we learned is we'd, we'd just like pour that into the glass. You couldn't decant it, even though it had <laughs> sediment, because it would kill it. So yeah. you put it in your glass and it would be glorious. And then over the next 10 minutes, it would just die. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, you almost want to pour it just straight into your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> just maximize that. Chugability there. Yeah. That's right. Um, David, uh, one last question for me. Uh, what do the next 10 years for Ramey uh, wines look like? Well, the, I mean, the big hope is that we um, will build the winery at, at Westside Farms. We have, um, you know, we were approved by the BZA, the Board of Zoning Assessments. In September, and then there's a group of people who, 
retired to wine country who've decided that uh, there are too many wineries. And so they appealed the approval, and now we're waiting for our hearing before uh, the Board of Supervisors, where I believe will be upheld, and then we'll see whether they sue or not. Um, but that's the, that's the big challenge that we're involved in and the big goal and the, and the big hope. Yeah. I mean, this is wine country. Yeah, it is. Right? It's the reason they call it that. Nobody, nobody <laughs> retires to Mendocino and tries to say there's too many bed and breakfasts. That's no, right. Really that's talk, right. Yeah. So, that's very true. Well, David, um, we've approached an hour on the show, and it's been highly entertaining. You're a <laughs> gentleman and, and a scholar, believe me. Um, Brian and Bart and... Yeah, shout outs. Uh, you know, I, w- I want to say that... Um, by the time you hear this, we will have already gone to Grenache Day. Um, I'm sure at the girl and the fig, at, sweet D, uh, sweet D, and we will have had a lot of fun and had a lot of good Grenache from uh, Spain and France. Uh, is, that, is that today? That's it's tomorrow, tomorrow. tomorrow. and tomorrow. you are you okay. are cordially invited. It starts at 6:30 on Eighth Street East, and I'm sure Sandra would love to have you there. It's BY. Bring your own bottle, and she is making dinner for us, and it's just. It's not a public event. It's just for people who are uh, Grenache lovers and uh, uh, want to sit That's yeah. right. Who just want to sit around and drink some good wine and eat some good food. Um, a shout out to the Rhone Room for uh, for selling us those wines and being the best adult. How do I say it? Adult toy store? No. Adult it's a toy store is, for adults. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> with those beautiful wines. Got a, got a chance to see Todd Jolly yesterday uh, at Sonoma's Best. And so I always like to get a shout out to him carrying those amazing wines, um, uh, and also to uh, Casey Graybell, who I imagine we will see tomorrow, as well as uh, Morgan Peterson. So all our friends in the Rhone uh, industry. And uh, who am I leaving out? Uh, you know, I, I, a probably, lot, probably a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I'd like uh, to thank David uh, for spending some time with us. Absolutely. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. You're someone who I, as a winemaker of uh, followed and um, found a lot of inspiration from. Certainly learned a lot from you during the times when um, we worked. Uh, you know, when I worked with the Benzikers. Um, so appreciate appreciate you taking time out during harvest. Um, and um, and it smells so good in this building. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's just smells like fermentation. And, and yeah. folks, you know, Ramey wines are available nationwide. Um, uh, check out the website at uh, RameyWines.com. Yeah, RameyWineSingular.com. And um, uh, do you do appointments by? We we are open by appointment currently, uh, six days a week, uh, every day but Sunday at ten ten o'clock and two o'clock. Beautiful wines. I was going to say Thank you, you can find them on the Sante wine list. As well. Oh yeah, so I mean, if if you want to come to the uh, Fairmont uh, at the Sonoma Mission Inn, we do have some Ramey wines available that we would love to sell to you. <laughs> enjoy with you. That's the enjoy. Uh, we'd love to enjoy, enjoy with yeah, you. you. We go. would love to help That's you fine. enjoy those wines. <laughs> as a matter of fact, right? So, folks, on your next trip to uh, Healdsburg and beautiful uh, Sonoma County, uh, please remember to check out Ramey Wines and. Uh, and you can find them on the internet. Believe me, you can order on the internet. It's very easy. You've got a great website, David. So, oh, great. Whoever Thank is you. Alan did that. That's <laughs> cheers. So. Yeah. Well, hey everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to the Winemakers. I'm John Myers with uh, Brian Casey and Bart Hansen and David Ramey today and our friend Thomas. 
pleasure. And um, and uh, can, can I just say, if you're going to come up here and taste some wines, do what we did. Stop at the shed, have lunch. That was very good. It was good. Well, Sit you, outside. Thomas had duck. I had uh, chicken hash. It was uh, homemade yolk. I mean, it was yeah, good stuff. Go. Yeah. The, the shed, uh, um, Campo Fina, uh, you got Willie's, some good, yeah. Willie's yeah. Seafood and Raw Bar, yeah. uh, Bravo's La, Terrace. La Bravo's, that's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got some good spots up here. Yep. Okay, right. thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. And thanks for listening to The Winemakers. Thanks, David.